and welcome to mini episode 93 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Jessica Dudley, Rachel Schneider, Snizzlebigs, Claire Eastwood, Faye Sussex, Courtney Miller, Leah Hickey, Rebecca Hayes, Fiona Webster, Olivia Jade, Cam, Candy Sample, Belinda Johnson, Gillian Van Houten, Amy Clausen, Kim S, Jerry Alexis, Lewis Holkett, Jennifer MacDonald, and Etienne. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I appreciate you every single day. And I have two spooky stories for you today. And the last story was from November the 27th, 2020. And story number one today comes from Sam. And Sam is the host of Soul Tree Path Podcast, which is a podcast that is all about spirituality. So if it sounds interesting to you, make sure and check it out. My experiences with the paranormal as a child were always brushed off as my imagination. I'm still not sure if this was due to my parents telling me it was my imagination, or from me not willing to admit I lived in a house that was active with spirits. Maybe it was both. I will start with my experiences at the youngest age I can remember. I was really young. I think I was between the ages of five and ten. I lived in a split-level house with my parents and my older brother. The upstairs had three bedrooms all next to each other. My brother's room was on the left, my parents in the middle, and my bedroom on the right. What I didn't know then, but now I have a tremendous understanding of, is that I am highly intuitive with the psychic sense of knowing and feeling when spirits are close by. And it was very strong at the time of this first experience, before I had shut off my psychic abilities. The events started out simple and playful, but turned into something more disturbing. For many years, every night, I would wake up with my blankets on the floor. And this is where that psychic sense of spirits comes in. I would never, ever want to get off my bed to get my blanket, but having a blanket on made me feel safe. So I would call out to my mom over and over until she woke up and came in to cover me back up. Because of this, my mom always told me and everyone else that I kicked in my sleep, assuming the blanket was falling off my bed due to me kicking. However, everyone would always argue this statement. My friends thought I was seeking attention because at sleepovers I apparently never kicked, and we spent many nights having sleepovers with our cousins who would also argue the statement of me kicking in my sleep. Apparently they would claim that I laid pretty still and never moved, And now as an adult, I do find that I wake up in the same position that I fell asleep in. One night, I woke up to my blanket being tugged. Just tugged. As if someone had grabbed the edge of the blanket and slightly pulled on it a couple of times. I sat up thinking maybe it was my brother. But no one was there. It was very dark, with the hallway light coming in through my cracked door. For some reason, I was subconsciously directed to look up at my closet door. I now understand as an adult, that was me listening to my psychic abilities of sensing spirits. At the top of the closet door, I saw two faces. Only faces, no bodies. And their expression was... Well, they basically had no expression. They weren't smiling or frowning. 
and the oddest thing about them is that they were glowing green, like a bright almost neon green. Two glowing green faces looking right at me. Being so young and raised in a family that either didn't believe in that stuff or just didn't want to talk about it, I didn't know what I saw or what to think. So being terrified of the unknown, I threw myself backwards on the bed and pulled the covers up over my head. I wanted to scream out to my mom, but I was so scared I couldn't actually make the decision to scream. I've never felt like that before. But that is when I felt my blanket be tugged again. I remember my eyes got huge. And before I could even think about what was going on, my blanket was pulled off me onto the floor. And that is what broke my silence, and I screamed louder than ever for my mom. I continued to wake up to my blanket being on the floor, and I continued to see the green faces at night. Eventually, I'd shut myself off to the spirit world, and no longer saw the green faces again. This was of course all chalked up to be my imagination, that I must have had a nightmare about the green faces and kicked my blanket off. The normal child would train themselves to believe the excuses their parents tell them. I, however, will never forget the truth. This might sound like a spirit having fun and teasing me, but as I got a little older some more serious things would start to happen, things that weren't playful and things that physically hurt me. As we got older, my brother moved to a bedroom downstairs and I moved into his old bedroom, still remaining upstairs. If you were around in the 80s, you will probably recall there was a phase for homeowners to have built-in shelves. They would turn an entire wall into shelves, shelves that would cover from floor to ceiling. These shelves would take way more than a hammer to remove them. This bedroom I moved into had one of those walls with built-in shelves. I positioned the head of my bed up against that wall, One of the shelves was the same height as the top of my mattress. At this age, probably around 13 I think, I no longer would wake up with the blanket on the floor and I no longer saw the green faces. But I would always wake up with a new bruise or a scratch somewhere on my body. This again was excused by factors other than a spirit or a ghost of some kind. I was told that I probably bumped myself the day before and didn't notice or I scratched myself without realising it. I believed this in the beginning, because that made sense to me. I then began to tell people that I bruise easily, and every now and then some bully kid would punch me in the arm and the next day point out that it had not bruised. I once again came off as an attention seeker. I would also like to add that after moving out of my childhood home, I stopped waking up with new bruises and scratches. It wasn't until the next experience when I started to wonder if the bruises and scratches were caused by a spirit or an entity. Remember how I mentioned that shelf on the wall was the same level as the top of my mattress? Well, I would wake up all the time with my head in between that shelf and the one above it with my pillow on the floor. And about 90% of the time when I would wake up, I would try to sit up before opening my eyes and smack my head on the shelf above me. There are a couple of things about this that I would like to comment on. First, I have never before then, and never since then, woke up without a pillow under my head. And also, how do I not wake up to a pillow being taken out from under me? Secondly, 
I've had my bed at many different positions throughout my life and I've never woken up with my head going off the edge or even hitting a wall behind it. So how could I have scooted up so much to have my head in between the shelves? And thirdly, and most importantly in my mind, why would I try to sit up before opening my eyes? Never before and never after have I sat up immediately with my eyes closed while waking out of sleep. Once again, my parents had excuses for what was happening. The bruises, scratches and hitting my head on the shelf continued to about 15 or 16 years old. Even after my brother moved out and I moved into his old bedroom downstairs. That bedroom too had a wall with shelves built in from floor to ceiling. As time went on, I had accepted it was the norm. I stopped questioning it and stopped paying attention to it. What happened next terrified me so badly, the image of it all is burned into my memory. I was watching TV in the downstairs family room, home alone, and I don't remember why we had a balloon in the house, but we just did. Just one that I can remember. Maybe we had more, but that one balloon is ingrained into my memory. Our house was a decent size, not huge, but definitely not small. The house was split level as I mentioned before and the balloon was upstairs in the family room. If you decided to walk downstairs from the front door, you would find me sitting on the couch in the downstairs family room, just watching TV. And that is also where the balloon found me. I was just sitting there, and I looked over, and saw the balloon floating down the stairs. So of course, by this age, I had been trained to find excuses for these experiences, I chalked it up to there being a draft somewhere in the house, but I still didn't want to hang out with that balloon, so I took the balloon and brought it back upstairs, and once again it floated back down to me. I don't remember exactly how many times this went on, but I do remember the last two times right before I decided to leave the house. One of the times I had decided to let the balloon stay downstairs, since that was where the draft was bringing it. So I went upstairs and watched TV in the kitchen. We kept a small, travel-sized TV in the kitchen. They were a thing in the 90s. As I was sitting at the table with my back turned to the stairs, I noticed a shadow or movement reflected in the TV. I turned around and watched that damn balloon float up one set of stairs and literally change course of direction to float up the second set of stairs, change course of direction again to float and stop right next to me in the dining area. Now a normal person may have said hell no by this time, but I was raised to find excuses. So instead of leaving the house, I decided to leave the balloon in the kitchen and go listen to music in my bedroom downstairs. Now here is where my fuck this experience with the balloon happened. Remember, I had just left the balloon upstairs, after it floated back up there. I'm now downstairs in my room, laying on my bed, listening to music. My head facing the window, away from the room behind me. Eventually, I honestly don't remember how long, I'd looked over, and saw the balloon floating right next to me. The balloon would have had to float down split-level stairs, across the big basement, over the sofa over the pool table, float at an angle to get through the bedroom door on the right and once again change direction to float left across one bedroom and into the next where I was laying on my bed. 
This is when I said, oh hell no, and left my home. If I recall, I'd walked around until I ended up at a friend's house and told my mom she had to pop the balloon before I would come back home. I do feel the need to point out that each time the balloon found me, it would stop right next to or in front of me. It never passed me, and it never stopped at a distance. If I said that was all my experiences, I would be lying. I have to track back just a little bit to the age of 12, just for a second. There was an advertisement for this new doll called Talking Bubba. Even though I was 12, I really wanted that doll. He seemed so cool. He would react to everything you did to him. So if you shook him, he would yell to stop shaking him. And then when you stopped, he would say he was dizzy. If you held his mouth closed, he would mumble, I can't talk. And it would sound like a person would if they tried to talk with their mouth closed. If you plugged his nose, he would yell, I can't breathe. Hey, I can't breathe. At age 12, I begged my mom for weeks to get me that doll for Christmas. I haven't wanted something that bad in a long time. Christmas Eve came and I was ecstatic that I'd gotten him. He was just as cool as I thought he would be. But now as I write this, I realise how it was a doll made to be tortured. And I'm now happy I no longer have it. Because that's just weird. So now you know how and when I got the doll. And I kept it out on my bed. I really thought it was the coolest invention ever. No matter what age I was, I showed him off to everyone. Eventually his batteries died and I never changed them. No reason why, I was just busy living my teenage life hanging out with friends. One day, at maybe 15 or 16 years old, minding my own business, I was playing Tony Hawk on my PlayStation in my bedroom and talking Bubba, decided to talk. I don't remember which phrases were said, but he did at least only say the phrases he was built to say. It still creeped me out. After all, his batteries had been dead for some time now. And even though I knew that when batteries died, they would make a winding down noise, or like a distorted noise. And when he spoke, it was as clear as if there were fresh batteries in him. So I tried playing with him, and nothing happened. I then went upstairs and asked my mom to change his batteries. You know how lazy teens can be. And I don't know why I asked her. I think at the time I was hoping that he only spoke because of some built-up juice in the old batteries, and if I changed them he wouldn't randomly speak again. My mom got the screwdriver and opened his plastic battery pack, only to find immensely corroded batteries. She cleaned it up but we didn't have the right batteries to put back in. So she said she would pick some up soon, and until then she closed him back up. And we left talking Bubba in the upstairs living room, while we waited to buy the right type of batteries. Maybe a day or two later, I was sitting in the upstairs living room playing with either our dog or one of our cats. And that doll, sitting on the couch, fucking spoke again. It spoke. With no batteries. I stopped and stared at it. Maybe a minute went by and it spoke again. I didn't care that it was only saying the phrases it was built to say. It was speaking without batteries. So naturally I did what any teenager would do and I stuck it in a closet. 
This closet was just a coat closet, very small, and it was at the top of the stairs right before stepping foot into the dining area of the kitchen. I kept it there, and had learned over many years of my childhood, if I told my parents they would only find an excuse for these events. And I didn't want an excuse this time. I only wanted someone to believe me. So I kept it to myself, and just hoped the doll being in the closet would be enough to end it all. Silly teenage me. Every now and then, when I would walk upstairs and pass the closet, it would speak. By the time I moved out, I said I do not ever want that doll to come with me. Now, a tiny important bit of information. When I had moved out, I wasn't speaking with my mom, So I'd packed up everything without her knowing and moved out while she was working. But after I moved and opened one of the boxes, there he was. Sitting on top of everything, looking at me. And that was when I finally threw it away. Because I know damn well I didn't pack it in my box. And my mom didn't even know that I was moving out. So, first of all, Before we even get into the travesty of this talking doll, it struck me when I was reading this that the green faces, the glowing neon green faces, seem to be quite a common theme. Not necessarily expressionist faces, but that glowing green element of people seeing these entities or spirits or whatever, or visions, whatever they are, at night time. I wonder why glowing green? Again, it's like that wardrobe thing in the afterlife. Do you get a choice? Is there only Victorian clothes left? Because if I was going to be glowing in neon, I'd want a neon pink, but that's just a personal preference. Uh, but it's it's just an interesting thing that people... It's another shared experience of people seeing these neon green entities uh, at night time. And I wonder why. Why glow neon green? Is it like something that's ingrained in our psyche from films like Ghostbusters or... Oh, I don't know answers on a postcard but I do have to talk about this talking bubba I can't well I can believe this was invented because there have been some very questionable toys throughout history but you are so right Sam this sounds like a toy that was made just to torture it how did that even how did that get made are we why why did people not question the creator of this toy And go, hey, I think you might need to be arrested because I can't believe you've made this. Incredible. The 80s were a wild time, man. And story number two comes from Nancy. When I was a kid in the 50s and 60s, I got to spend a fair amount of time with my great-grandmother and Nora Byers. The fact that she was from England was something I was always aware of, which, for a kid growing up in Arizona, made her seem rather exotic. It was only recently, through Ancestry.com, that I learned that her parents had come from Ireland, although her maiden name, Anora Riley, should have been a giveaway. I remember Anora as a short, plump, matronly lady who wore subtle flower-print dresses and sturdy, sensible shoes, all very tasteful and proper, and who wasn't particularly warm and affectionate towards her great-grandchildren. One of the earliest memories I have connected to my great-grandmother is an odd one. At the end of the street where I lived in Phoenix with my parents and my brothers was a small, red-brick, Tudor-style house, probably from the 1920s or 30s, 
with a small sign near the front door. At some point, my parents told me that this was actually a kind of church, a spiritualist church. My mom explained that, in addition to praying and singing hymns, the people at that church believed that they could communicate with the spirits of the people who had died. This sounded very weird to me, but also deliciously scary. But I have a vague memory of my mom telling me that our own grandma Byers had actually gone there, to that very church, on occasion. Whether or not she had ever experienced what she took to be a communication with a departed spirit, I never knew. Other than that offhand comment from my mom about that church, I never heard anything else about it. I would assume, though, that Anor must have been enough of a believer to want to go more than once. Neither of my parents believed in anything religious or spiritual, not to mention supernatural, and I gather that they thought of Anor's dabbling in spiritualism as an amusing eccentricity. My brothers and I grew up in a family that was militantly pro-science and pro-reason. Only ignorant and superstitious people believed in things like ghosts. My parents got divorced when I was 12. Both my parents remarried, and while I'd started out living with my mom after the divorce, she and I had some rocky times at the beginning of my freshman year of high school, and so I went to live with my father and my stepmother. Shortly after that, my stepfather got a new job, as the superintendent of the Rainier State School, a residential school for people with developmental disabilities in Buckley, Washington, east of Tacoma, so he and my mom went up there to live. My tense relationship with my mom continued for a couple of years, and of course it didn't help that we were so far away from one another. It was only when she came down to Phoenix for the funeral of my grandpa Adams, her dad who went by the nickname Red, at the end of my junior year of high school, that we got together again at my grandparents' house and managed to patch things up. As it happened, great-grandma Byers had died just the year before. I'm sorry to say that because of my estrangement from my mother, I hadn't attended her funeral. I remember a conversation my mother and I had with Anora's daughter Fanny, my grandma Adams, during my mom's visit to Phoenix following my grandfather's funeral. Grandma told us in the days since his death, she had had several experiences when she had sensed Red's presence very strongly, to the point of actually feeling his hands resting on her shoulders. She was not at all frightened or upset about this. In fact, she found it comforting. She then told us that she had called my Uncle Bob, her youngest child, to tell him about it, and he had told her that he had experienced much the same thing, at or about the same time that she had. I had no idea what to make of this. While I knew about Anora's dabbling in spiritualism, I had never before heard Grandma Adams or Uncle Bob say anything about ghosts or spirits. It was a little unsettling, and I remember exchanging glances with my mother and being tactfully silent, other than saying something non-committal like, wow, that's interesting. I think my mom and I both chalked it up to my grandmother's and my uncle's shared flair for the dramatic. By the end of that visit with my mom, our relationship had warmed up to the point that she invited me to visit her and my stepfather in Washington for the Christmas vacation of my senior year in high school. My dad approved, and so I got to ride up on the train in a private sleeping car, a memorable and luxurious experience. I was very impressed with the house my mom and stepfather were living in. It was on the grounds of the school, 
and it was a red brick Georgian style mini mansion, probably dated to around 1939 when the school was established. It was quite elegant and clearly designed for entertaining, as it featured a buzzer under the carpeting at one end of the dining room table, so the hostess could discreetly signal the wait staff in the kitchen when it was time for the next course. Apparently it was assumed when the house was built that the superintendent of this facility would be hosting lavish dinner parties. But by the time my parents moved there in 1970, social expectations had been lowered considerably, although they still did quite a bit of informal entertaining which my mom loved. But aside from a cleaning lady who came in occasionally, my mom took care of the housework, the cooking and the serving herself. Random side note, my brother thought it was great fun when he was visiting to wait until my mom had gone into the kitchen and then step on the buzzer. She was not amused. When I arrived for my visit that December, I got settled into my lovely guest bedroom and I was given the grand tour of the house. It was gorgeous and decorated for Christmas to within an inch of its life, which was one of my mom's favourite things to do. It had two storeys with an extra room on one side of the house above the attached garage accessed through a door on the landing halfway up the main staircase. That was my parents' general sitting room where they watched TV in the evenings while my mom did her ironing. There were at least five bedrooms and a large living room, and of course the aforementioned formal dining room. It was truly an impressive house, by far the grandest that anyone in my family had ever lived in. My first night there we had dinner out. We were having a pleasant conversation over the meal talking about the area around Buckley and around their lovely house when my stepfather casually mentioned something about my mom's little girl. My mom looked uncomfortable but when I naturally asked who the little girl was she told me the story. One day several weeks before my visit my mom had been standing at the kitchen sink washing dishes. For some reason she turned around and there in front of her, maybe eight feet away on the other side of the kitchen, she saw a little girl. The image vanished immediately, so she got only an impression of what the girl looked like. Slender, with long blonde hair and wearing a white dress. She couldn't recall any other details. My mom was quite shaken by this, and her first instinct was to call out to my stepfather, but feeling kind of foolish, she decided against that. She then started looking around the kitchen thinking that maybe, as she had turned, she had caught a glimpse of an image of a girl, perhaps on a food package, and that the image had momentarily remained on her retina, or in her brain. But she couldn't find anything in the kitchen that even remotely resembled what she had seen. She did tell my stepfather about this experience later that day, and they both agreed that it was an odd and inexplicable experience but nothing to get upset about. A few days later, mom was again working in the kitchen. It was an unusually warm day, so the kitchen door to the outside was open, with just the screen door shut. She was bustling around as usual when she happened to glance at the door. There was the little girl again, standing just outside the screen door looking in. As before, the image remained just long enough for it to register before disappearing. Mom was sure that it was the same image as the first time, a slender little girl, maybe eight or nine years old with long blonde hair, wearing some kind of white dress. Mom was now thoroughly bewildered. 
She had always dismissed the idea of anything supernatural, despite her mom's and her grandmother's proclivities, so her inclination was to think that there was something wrong with her. When she had the chance, she told my stepfather about this experience. He was a clinical psychologist by training, and he was of the opinion that the image of the little girl might be a kind of hallucination, perhaps triggered by some anxiety she was feeling about my upcoming visit. She accepted this theory as reasonable, or at least as reasonable as any other explanation. She did note, however, that the little girl bore no resemblance to me, even as a younger child since my hair was brown, and I could never have been described in my childhood as slender. Several days went by with no further visitations. Then one afternoon, Mom was in the sitting room, ironing while she was watching TV, when she happened to turn to look outside. There on the other side of the window looking in was the little girl again, this time seemingly suspended in mid-air, as the sitting room was above the garage. As before, the image remained just long enough for Mom to realise it was there before it vanished. By now, my mom was seriously frightened. Not because she believed that the house, or maybe she, was haunted, but because she thought she might be suffering from some kind of mental breakdown. But she hadn't been feeling particularly stressed or worried, so she didn't fully buy my stepfather's explanation that these experiences were due to anxiety. That left only a few possibilities, all of which were equally troubling. A brain tumour or maybe some kind of serious mental illness such as psychosis. But as she felt quite healthy otherwise, there was really nothing to do but to continue to go about her daily routine and hope that she didn't have any further episodes. Mom's final experience with the little girl came a week or so later, although she admitted that it was not as dramatic as the earlier ones. Once again, it was in the middle of the day and my mom had been upstairs cleaning. She was about to go downstairs and as she approached the top of the staircase, she suddenly got the overwhelming feeling that the little girl was standing at the bottom of the stairs, although she didn't actually look to see her. Mom closed her eyes for a moment and when she opened them again and did look, there was nothing there. This had happened just a couple of weeks before my arrival and between then and the day that I arrived, nothing happened out of the ordinary. I was quite taken aback. What do you say to your mother whom you know to be, if anything, hyper-rational when she tells you something like that? I could only express amazement and bewilderment. I couldn't question the truth of her story. Whatever had actually happened to her and whatever the reason for it, she was quite sure about what she had perceived and I had no reason to doubt her account. Needless to say, the rest of my visit to their lovely house was a little nerve-wracking, but nothing out of the ordinary happened. She never saw the little girl again, and about six months later my stepfather accepted the position of Commissioner for the Office of Mental Retardation, that was what it was known as then, for the state of Connecticut, and they moved to Hartford. Years later though, long after they had moved to Connecticut, she did tell me that one of the cats they had owned while they lived in Buckley would act very strangely in the sitting room. While they were watching TV in the evenings, the cat would often walk to the middle of the room and look out the open door towards the landing and freeze there, just staring into empty space. This would go on for a minute or so and then the cat would lose interest and go about its business. Mom and Gary would joke about it, 
but I know that it made Mom very nervous. I should also mention that once they'd gotten settled into their new condominium in Connecticut, this same cat developed the unsettling habit of jumping over an invisible barrier, apparently about 10 inches high, every time he walked by a particular place in the floor in their living room. But that's another story. Before they left Buckley, Mom and my stepfather did do a little research, just to see if there had ever been a little girl associated with the house but they couldn't find any information that fit. Of course, at that time, the Rainier School had been for over 30 years a residential facility for children and adults, many with serious developmental disabilities, and there must have been a lot of sad cases, especially in its early days, of young children having been left there by their parents and not understanding why. It's also not far-fetched to assume that some of the residents may have had other serious medical problems and may have died young. A strange kind of postscript to this bit of family lore happened many years later during the last weeks of my mother's life, when she was dying of pancreatic cancer at the age of 86. She would sometimes see my brother in her room at the hospice centre, when in fact he was thousands of miles away in Seattle, but she knew that it was an hallucination, probably brought on by the medication she was taking, and possibly also because of her deteriorating medical condition, and she would quite calmly tell me that she could see Mike, even when she knew that he wasn't there. She would also tell me that she sometimes saw what looked like a gauzy veil hanging down in front of her. She would reach out her hand and say, It looks so real. I feel like I could even touch it. She once asked me if there was a map on the wall across from her bed, and when I said there wasn't, she accepted that without any argument, but explained to me that she thought she saw a huge map, with red and blue lines indicating roads filling the entire wall. The wall, by the way, was painted a solid colour. One day, about a week before her death, I was visiting and the nurses came in to turn her in the bed to prevent bed sores. It had been a few days since she had spoken or acknowledged my presence. The nurses worked quietly and efficiently chatting in low voices and telling me how much they liked my mom, how she was always good-natured and polite to everyone. Then one of them started to say something about mom, something like, You know, it was the strangest thing, she... But stopped abruptly and glanced at her companion. I said something like, What were you going to say? and the two of them exchanged worried looks. I said, Whatever it is, I'd like to hear it. I'm sure it's fine. The one who had been about to speak said, Well, we've had some interesting experiences with Shirley. Last week we were in here, and she said she could see names written on the wall across from her bed, although she told us she knew they were just hallucinations and we agreed. But then she started reading the names out loud, and we both realised that she was naming people who had died while they were staying in this room. It was pretty amazing. The other nurse nodded in agreement. The first nurse went on. We see some unusual things in here, but that's never happened before. I hope you don't mind that we told you I realised that it could be upsetting to you. I'd gotten the proverbial chill down my spine during this narrative, but I didn't want her to feel bad, so I assured her that I wasn't at all upset. I went on to say that it seemed that the women folk in my family, myself excluded fortunately, seemed to have a talent for perceiving things that other people couldn't, 
so that it didn't surprise me as much as she might have imagined. But I had no explanation. Later, it occurred to me that maybe Mom had just hallucinated random first names and that it might have been totally coincidental that in the course of reciting this list, she happened to hit upon a few names that were familiar to the nurses. After all, I hadn't quizzed them to find out if she had read last names as well as first names, or whether she specifically mentioned only the names of people whom they knew to have recently died in the room. But the more I thought about it, the less plausible that theory seemed. Certainly, these veteran hospice nurses wouldn't have been that impressed by a random list of names hallucinated by a dying woman, even if a few of the names might have matched the names of people whom they knew to have died in that room. And they were both clearly reluctant to talk about it after the one nurse had started to blurt it out. And I don't think that they would have felt that strongly about it if they themselves thought it was just a random incident that could be easily explained. My mom died early in the morning about a week later, without having regained consciousness. I'm happy to report that I've never to this day felt her presence or seen her image, other than in photographs I have of her. Whatever gift there is for witnessing the paranormal among the women in my family, I seem to have not inherited it, and for that I'm very grateful. My wife and I have had a number of strange things happen in our new house, but that's a story for another time. I think a guest that I would love to have on the show at some point would be a palliative care nurse or a nurse in a a home for the elderly or something along those lines because I just think they they see all the stages of death all the time and they must have so many amazing stories about just strange things that happen around the time of death not because I don't necessarily think it's all paranormal like like Nancy tried to kind of explain away the names which is a very very strange thing to have happened I don't think it's all paranormal I think you know some of it is obviously to do with your brain at the end of life but I think there must be a lot of stuff that happens like the reading out or like the naming of the names that would make you go well that's a bit strange and I find it really interesting that Nancy's mom spoke about seeing a literal veil like a curtain in front of her which is just mad when you think about it. I th- I I really enjoy kind of end of life stories. I mean, I don't enjoy the fact that people die, not at all. But I think those end of life stories where you have those strange things that happen are really fascinating. Thank you to Sam and Nancy for sending in your stories. Don't forget to listen to the Soul Tree Path podcast if it sounds like it's your thing. I will make sure the link to that is in the description of this episode. Make sure that you send your own spooky story to Podcast at gmail.com if you've got one that you'd like to share. And also check out our website Podcast.com. And on that note, we shall see you next week.